Throughout chapter 4 of his epistle, James has hammered home on the need to constrain oneself from worldliness. Many believers have engaged in worldliness as evidenced by behavior such as lust, envy, jealousy, anger, hate, quarrels, and conflicts. James has warned believers to repent and forsake worldliness as it results in hostility with God. James pointed out that the believer is prone to worldliness because of pride. Pride not only makes you prone to worldliness, but it causes you to misuse your tongues to demean others. As James demonstrated, pride elevates oneself above others. And contrary to pride, James urged us as believers to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. However, humility proved itself elusive as demonstrated in James 4, 13-17. James calls out his readers here for failing to consider God in their plans. Underlying James' rebuke of failing to consider God in one's plans is Proverbs 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. The Hebrew term boast, halal, is sometimes translated as praise. The idea then of boast is praising oneself. See, in the context of Proverbs 27 and verse 1, the individual is praising himself about about what he will accomplish the next day. The irony of such a boast is that this individual has no means of guaranteeing what will happen in the future. Furthermore, boasting or praising oneself is a form of pride. Instead of boasting of oneself, let others do the praising. As Proverbs 27 verse 2 states, Let another praise Hallel you, and not your own mouth. A stranger, and not your own mouth. See, my friends, planning without considering the God factor is rooted in pride. It's rooted in a false perception of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is just another form of worldliness. Worldliness says to trust in yourself and believe in yourself. Scripture commands us to trust and believe in God alone. Nonetheless, in their self-sufficiency, too many believers fail to consider God in making their plans. Is that you? They fail to consider the fragility of life. Is that you? Such believers even come to a place of failing to even acknowledge God. Is that you? They arrogantly boast and brag about their accomplishments. Is that you? My friends, failing to consider God in your plans results in three sins. The sins of presumption, boasting, and omission. So let's take our Bibles and turn to James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. And we're going to see that the first sin that results from failing to consider God in one's plans is the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption. James chapter 4, verse 13 to 15. Come now, you who say, 
today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Again, the first sin that results from failing to consider God and one's plans is the sin of presumption. James begins in verse 13 with the injunction, Come now. That verb, come now, agonun, denotes a sense of urgency and can be rendered, stop what you're doing and pay attention. In other words, James is about to share something of utmost importance. Stop what you're doing. Pay attention. As well, the verb connotes an admonitory tone. Like a father, James admonishes his spiritual children for unbecoming behavior. Now, while James is writing to all believers, he singles out a particular group of believers. You who say. What is it that they are saying? They are saying, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Thus, these believers are those who desire to make money. They're likely merchants or businessmen. And during the first century AD, many Jews left Judea and Galilee and settled in Hellenistic cities throughout the Mediterranean world to engage in business and Make a profit. Now the verb say, lego, is in the present tense, indicating that the statement reveals their ordinary and usual practice. Further, these businessmen make their claims with confidence. In essence, they are purporting the idea that their plans for their future are under their control. The phrase is today and tomorrow, such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business denotes the idea that they have decided when, when they will go, where they will go, how long they will stay, and what they will do. As well, they confidently boast that they'll make a profit. Now we must pause here and underscore that James is not rebuking these businessmen for making plans or even desiring to make money. Instead, as verse 14 and 15 will clarify, he rebukes their self-sufficiency and plans without considering God. They committed the sin of presumption, thinking their plans were entirely under their control. And my friend, if you believe that your future is entirely under your control, you are guilty of the sin of presumption. If you are not considering God in making your plans, you are guilty of the sin of presumption. Again, James does not condemn believers for being merchants or businessmen, but for their presumption in making plans without God. It must also be underscored that James is not rebuking believers for making plans for their future. The scripture does not condemn life insurance. It does not condemn saving accounts. It does not condemn IRAs. It does not condemn any type of retirement savings plan. Indeed, planning for the future is part of biblical stewardship. 
And the book of Proverbs provides some basic principles for biblical stewardship. First, believers must seek wise counsel. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 15, 22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. So we must seek wise counsel. Second, we must plan for the future. That's the second principle for biblical stewardship. We must plan for the future. Proverbs chapter 6, 6 to 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, no officer, no ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 24. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. The third principle of biblical stewardship is that believers must save and invest. Believers must save and invest. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5 and 20. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. Fourth, the fourth principle for biblical stewardship is that we must be ethical in our stewardship. We must be ethical in our stewardship. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 11. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Proverbs 22 and verse 16. He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. And the fifth, and most importantly, the most important biblical principle for stewardship is that we must be faithful to God in our stewardship. We must be faithful to God in our stewardship. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. He who trusts in his riches will fall. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 9, The mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And so we have five basic principles for biblical stewardship. Again, we must seek wise counsel. We must plan for the future. We must save and invest. We must be ethical in our stewardship. And most importantly, we must be faithful to God in our stewardship. When we follow these basic principles of biblical stewardship, we will be blessed. So again, James is condemning and rebuking believers who make plans without considering God. To emphasize the futility of making plans without God, James provides two reasons that these believers are guilty of the sin of presumption. First, you are guilty of the sin of presumption because you cannot predict tomorrow. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. The verb do not know, uepistemi, implies a lack of specific information about something. See, the point is no one knows the specifics of tomorrow. 
Now certainly we can use science and statistics to determine the weather and warn of impending danger. We can even narrow it down to a general area of time, but we cannot predict precisely when or where a weather-related disaster will strike. No one lays their head on the pillow at night knowing definitely what tomorrow will bring. Indeed, as Proverbs 27 and verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. God alone is infinite and all-knowing. And to presume that you can know the future and dictate your plans is to presume upon God's character. Second, you are guilty of presumption because life is fleeting and frail. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. The term vapor, atmos, refers to a mist or breath. James employs a wordplay with the term vapor. He states that it appears, phaino, and vanishes away, aphanazo. Phaino, aphanazo. James' illustration can best be understood by the appearance of one's breath on a cold winter morning. As one's warm breath meets the cold air, it is briefly suspended in a gaseous state, which is seen briefly before dissipating. James' comparison to one's life to breath is drawn from the Old Testament. Job 7, verse 7, remember that my life is but breath but a vapor. I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. Psalm 39 and verse 5, Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath or vapor. See, like a breath, life is momentary and fleeting. How much more transitory is life in the face of death, Illness, accidents, and natural disasters. Because life is fragile and the future is uncertain. And nonetheless, believers, even some of you, continue making plans for the future and do not factor God into your plans. In verse 15, James sets forth the parameter for making plans. The preposition instead, anta, means in place of something else. In other words, James is setting forth what you should be thinking when making plans. Any and all of your plans should be precipitated upon if the Lord wills. The phrase, if the Lord wills, is more than just a trite saying. It is an acknowledgement that your life and deeds we shall both live and do this or that, are ultimately determined by God's will. James 14, verse 5, Since his days are determined, the numbers of his month is with you, and his, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Psalm 139, and verse 16, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now the phrase, if the Lord wills, likely originated with Jesus in his model prayer given during the Sermon on the Mount. Your will be done. Matthew 6 verse 10. 
Later in Matthew 26 and verse 42, before heading to the cross, Jesus prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. By saying, if the Lord wills, we are submitting ourselves to seek and do God's will in every area of our life. Does that describe you? See, seeking and doing God's will requires a willingness to change your plans if said plans are not in God's will. Are you willing to do that? The Apostle Paul planned out his life and ministry according to the Lord's will. Acts 18.21 Paul taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. Romans chapter 1 and verse 10. If perhaps now, at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 7. I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. Now, I would, I would like to issue a warning. Beware of allowing the phrase, if the Lord wills, or Lord willing, to become trite or glib. Too often we utter these words without understanding or considering the weight of their meaning. To think or utter this phrase is to acknowledge that you will do nothing without God's permission. My friends, making plans according to God's will places you within God's perfect will. But if you make plans without considering God's will, you will find yourself living in God's permissive will and suffering the consequences of the sin of presumption. Friends, you would do well to take time to meditate upon Jesus' parable of the wealthy landowner. In the parable, the wealthy landowner found himself having no place to store his harvest. After reasoning with himself, Luke 12, 18-19 reveals his plan. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Notice how this man failed to consider God in his plans. He presumed that he knew best what he needed. Now, while there's nothing wrong with building bigger barns, he never stopped to consider if that was God's will. How many of you make the same mistake? There is no decision, big or small, that should be made without considering God's will. Take special note of God's response to the wealthy landowner's sin of presumption. Luke 12, 20 records, But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? All of his planning came to naught. No sooner had he built his barns, he died. He did not consider God, nor did he consider the brevity of life. His bigger barns meant nothing in light of eternity. Standing before God, he could not barter his barns for God's blessings. 
And so, believers, we must beware of presuming that we can live and make plans without considering God. As Kurt Richardson stated, life is lived, but only if God wills, just as assuredly as deeds are done, only if God wills. Don't be guilty of the sin of presumption. The second sin that results from failing to consider God in one's plans is the sin of boasting. The sin of boasting. James chapter 4 and verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Again, the second sin that results from failing to consider God in one's plans is the sin of boasting. Not only were these believers presumptuous, they also boasted about their plans. The verb boast, kakaomai, means to be loud-tongued or to speak loudly about something. Simply stated, boasting is bragging. Now, boasting has both positive and negative aspects. Positively, one can speak loudly about God. In this sense, one is giving praise or glory to God for who He is and what He's done. Negatively, you can speak loudly about yourself. And in that case, you are bragging about yourself and your accomplishments. Instead of glorifying or praising God, these believers pat themselves on their back over how excellent their self-made plans are. And I got news for you, that's that kind of boasting is all too common in the American church where our culture dictates the celebration of the self-made man. James also states that their boasts are in arrogance. Arrogance, alazonia, refers to being pretentious. Interestingly, the Greek term derives from alazon, referring to someone whose mouth is too big for their body. The idea is that they speak of things about which they know nothing. The term is often applied to individuals who offered cures for ills that were not cures. The modern equivalent is that of a quack. According to the dictionary, a quack is, quote, a person who pretends, professionally or publicly, to skill, knowledge, or qualifications he or she does not possess, i.e., a charlatan. Now, by understanding the original meaning of the term arrogance, we can translate this phrase, you boast in your arrogance, as you are boasting in your pretensions. See, when you presumptuously make plans without considering God, you are pretentious. You claim to know the future that only the omniscient God could know. And claiming any omniscience about the future is akin to blasphemy. Now, lest anyone thinks that James is only condemning one type of boasting, he states, all such boasting is evil. Now, the term such, tuyutas, is a demonstrative pronoun that singles out a particular object or noun. Here, the term such singles out boasting. The phrase can be rendered as all boasting such as this is evil. In other words, boasting in your 
arrogance or in your pretension is just one type of boasting that is evil. And evil, paneros, refers to anything that is morally wicked or immoral. Now consider the gravitas that boasting is just as immoral in God's sight as any other type of immorality. Boasting, caucasus, as used in this context, is the, act, is the act of ostentatiously proclaiming one's achievement. Now, God condemns such an act, 1 Corinthians 1.29, so that no man may boast before God. Galatians 5.26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, etc., in 1 John 2.16, the Apostle John included boasting in his threefold description of worldliness, the boastful pride of life. And so, my friends, when you boast, you are behaving in a worldly manner. And sadly, all too many believers, and perhaps even some of you, have fallen into the sin of boasting without recognizing it. See, like the Pharisees of old, you fall into the sin of boasting by publicly sharing your righteous works. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for boasting in their righteous works. He said in Matthew 6, 1-4, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, practicing your righteousness refers to charitable deeds done for the benefit of those in need. Indeed, believers are commanded to care for the needy. However, Jesus warns that we must be careful in our charitable works. When you or I do a righteous work or a charitable deed to be seen of people, we forfeit our heavenly reward. And so as not to forfeit our heavenly reward... Jesus provided two principles for us in our practice of charitable deeds. One, charitable deeds should be done in private. Do not sound a trumpet. In other words, do not bring attention to the righteous work you're doing. Two, righteous deeds should be done in secret. When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The idea that the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing implies that the giver forgets what he or she gave. That is, you are not to make a public display of your righteous works or charitable deeds. Living, however, in a social media-saturated culture has produced an attitude of oversharing. People, including believers, overshare the various details of their lives. They're so quick to share, sometimes with good intention, that they fail to recognize they've fallen into the sin of boasting. For example, in a time of crisis, it is beautiful that believers want to respond with righteous deeds to the needs of those who are hurting. However, their good intention becomes evil when they succumb to the overarching need to post it to social media. 
In doing so, they have failed to perform their righteous work in private and in secret. They have earned the praise of people and forfeited their heavenly reward. Now, you may disagree. You may retort, well, such posts are made to praise the Lord. Friends, praise to the Lord should put all the attention on the Lord, who He is and what He has done. Talking about what you're feeling or doing is not talking about what God has done. You can praise God. Praise God that He provided help to the helpless. But be sure to leave yourself out of it. Some believers are also boasting of their righteous deeds and excusing them with Christianese jargon to make it sound spiritual. i got news for you. Invoking Christianese jargon doesn't make your boasting any more spiritual or less arrogant. A current example of such Christianese jargon is the phrase, I'm being the hands and feet of Jesus. For instance, believers post about their righteous deeds and claim they are being the hands and feet of Jesus. Nowhere in Scripture are believers commanded to be Jesus' hands and feet. There is no description of believers in the Scripture as being Jesus' hands and feet. Yes, believers are part of the body of Christ. But the point of that illustration is to demonstrate that we all have differing functions in serving Christ. Just as eyes are not ears and hands are not feet, not every believer functions in the same way in their God-given ministry. Is it wrong then to use the phrase, being the hands and feet of Jesus? Again, the phrase is not found in Scripture. It has been popularized in some modern Christian songs. Again, that doesn't make it wrong. However, we have to find its source. And it originated with the Roman Catholic nun, Teresa of Avila. Her exact quote reads as follows. Quote, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks, compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. You, yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, yours are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Teresa's statement demonstrates why we need to be cautious from where we draw our theology. Her point was that we must help Jesus. The idea that we are being his hands and feet and eyes seemingly implies that he's disabled. But Scripture declares that Jesus' risen body is complete and glorified. The only marks upon his glorified body are the scars from a sacrificial death. Jesus is not disabled, nor does he need us to help him. Returning to the theme of the sin of boasting, in James 2.8, believers were commanded to obey the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Regarding this love, 1 Corinthians 13.5 states that love does not brag and is not arrogant. And now in James 4.16, we are being admonished to not boast in our arrogance. So when, when you believer are boastful, guess what? You're not truly loving your neighbor. You're not obeying the royal law. Beware the sin of boasting. The third sin that results from failing to consider God in one's plans is the sin of omission. James 4.17 
Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Again, the third sin that results from failing to consider God and one's plan is the sin of omission. The phrase, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin, was a common Semitic proverb of James' day. While there are some debate as to the source of this proverb, it's likely an application of Proverbs 3, 27-28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. James' inclusion of the term, therefore, un, underscores his intention to tie the truth of this proverb to his previous statement. In essence, verse 17 provides a summary of failing to consider God and one's plans. Believers who make plans without God commit the sins of presumption and boasting and the sin of omission. By definition, what is sin? Sin, hamartia, is ignoring or disobeying God's law in thoughts, feelings, words, or actions. Now, theologically, sins can be categorized either as sins of omission or sins of commission. A sin of commission is a willful violation of God's law. A sin of omission is a failure to do what is right. Paul confessed in Romans 7.19 that he was, both, he was guilty of both sins of omission and commission. He stated, for the good that I want, I do not do. That's omission. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. That's commission. The first recorded sin in the scripture was a sin of commission. In Genesis 2, 16 to 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And take note in Genesis 3, 6, Despite God's command, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, my friends, we commit sins of commission when we willfully violate God's commands as codified in his law. Hence, dishonoring parents, lying, stealing, murdering, or coveting are sins of commission. As well, since Jesus explained that these laws forbid not only the action, but the thought or motive behind the action, these sins of commission can be committed on the thought level. For example, Jesus said that if someone hates another person, they've committed murder. Therefore, hating someone is also a sin of commission. Jesus also stated that if someone lusts after another person, they've committed adultery. Ergo, lusting is a sin of commission. On the other hand, we commit sins of omission when we fail to do right. You see, besides the clear commands of the scriptures, we are expected as believers to do many good things. For example, we're to control our thoughts and think rightly. 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. Philippians 4 and verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. We're also to control our tongues and speak rightly. Ephesians 4, 15 and 29. Speak the truth in love. 
Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Colossians 4 and verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So, failing to control our thoughts or tongues is to commit the sin of omission. Believers who do not think or speak rightly have committed sins of omission. As well, the various one another statements of the New Testament are also a source of good that we are responsible for doing. In fact, there are 36 one another admonitions in the New Testament for which we are responsible. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded to one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Do not bite and devour one another. Do not provoke or envy one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Speak truth to one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Do not lie to one another. Submit to one another. Regard one another more important than oneself. Care for the interest of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Uh, Stir up one another. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against one another. Pray for one another. Confess your faults to one another. Show hospitality to one another. Be humble to one another. Friends, failure to heed these admonitions then is sin, sins of omission. Failure to love one another is a sin. Failure to care for one another is a sin. Failure to encourage one another and build up one another is a sin. Failure to be patient with one another is sin. How many of these 35 one another's are you guilty of failing to do? They're all sins of omission. And so having rebuked his readers... For their failure to consider God and their plans. James anticipates their rebuttal. They argue that since God's law does not explicitly command them to consider God and their plans, they're not guilty of sin. The problem here is they have created a false dichotomy. They assume that since it's not forbidden in God's law, it's not an issue. James says that if you know it's the right thing to do and you do not do it, it is sin. Sins of omission are just as serious, just as treacherous as sins of commission. The right thing to do is to consider God in making your plans. The right thing is to not boast of your achievements. Scripture addresses both of these issues, and believers have all heard those scriptures. Therefore, believers who fail to obey the word then are not doers of the word. If, if you are being presumptuous, if you're boasting, if you're committing a sin of omission, you are not a doer of the word. As James 1.22 says, you are merely a hearer who deludes himself or herself. Everybody makes plans to achieve their dreams and desires. Not everyone, including us, factors God into their plans. And friend, when you fail to consider God in your plans, you're committing three sins. Presumption, boasting, and omission. But I would challenge you to hit the pause button and consider whether or not you're factoring God into your plans. Not only the big plans, but the tiny plans. Life is short. 
And so we need to cultivate a mindset that begins each day thinking, Lord, I want to do your will. And as well throughout the day, we must pray, Lord, bring my desires in line with your desires. And so after considering God and thinking about his will and praying, let's make our plans and let's work those plans to God's glory. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help us not to forget you. Lord, so often we're so quick to make plans to dream dreams, to set goals, but we never take the time to stop and consider whether or not that's what you want. And so, Father, I pray that we would be sensitive to your will, to your leading, to your directing, that we would ask whether or not this plan is what you want, we would ask whether or not it glorifies you. And so, Father, help us not to be presumptuous. Lord, help us to consider the brevity of life in making our plans so that we make plans that count for you. And we're not frittering away our time on foolish things. Father God, I pray that you'd keep us from boasting. Father, it's so easy to get caught up in telling everybody what we've done. And so often, Lord, even intentions may be good. But as the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So Father, help us to guard our tongues so that we would not boast of ourselves, but that rather, Lord, we give all the glory to you. We'd keep our righteous deeds between you and us. If someone else wants to boast about it, let them. But as far as we go, Father, help us to keep our mouth shut. Father, help us. Not only in seeking not to do evil, not to commit laws of commission, but that, Lord, we would also not be guilty of, the, of committing sins of omission. So many good things we're to do. Help us, Father, to do them. Help us to live by that statement, to him that knoweth to do right and doeth it not, it is sin. And so, Father, teach us what is good and acceptable in your sight, and then may we go forth and do it. We pray in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.